Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast number 18. I am Dill, your host, and what our prerogative here is to talk to indie musicians, signed artists, producers, bookers, agents, composers, and others around the music industry from different genres and eras about their personal experiences navigating the business while touching upon some of the monetary aspects as well. Today we have music journalist and musician in his own right, Jeff Slate. Jeff writes about music, movies, and TV for Esquire magazine and has interviewed a who's who in the music world, including Tom Petty, Jimmy Page, Roger Waters, and Willie Nelson, just to name a few. He also actively leads the band Jeff Slayton Friends, in which the friends happen to be some legendary musicians themselves. We met recently in New York City, and this was our conversation. said uh, you know musician I, I assume you're a musician first journalist second is that fair to say it is fa- it is fair to say um i don't really think about it anymore i used to i mean i i always used to defend it as i'm a songwriter and then the bottom dropped out of the music industry 10 years ago or 15 almost and so i had to do something to supplement my income so i I took a step back and then built up this writing thing and got to the point where it was sort of 50-50-ish, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I was always a little defensive of, you know, the 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 writing part of it overtaking the music part of it because it's, it's very easy to do that because it's a different part of your brain. It's a different, you know, you're you do sit at a desk. I mean, I don't sit in an office or anything, right. but, it, but it's, um, but I, uh, you know, I, I, it's funny. I, I would say to musicians that I would be interviewing, you know, I started off by interviewing people I, I knew or had a connection to so that they were comfortable and I was comfortable and it gave me credits, you know, like big name, a list credits. And, um, And then, you know, I started to branch off into people like friends of friends. And so I ended up interviewing David Crosby for Esquire. And I, you know, I, because it was a friendly introduction, I went to his hotel, you know, and knocked on his hotel room door and he opened the door and he goes, you're not from Esquire. You're one of us. Right. And I thought that, and I, it's funny how like musicians see other musicians a certain way without you even, you don't have to like identify yourself or, and it's not, I don't know what it is because I don't, you know, I, I don't know how other, you know, it's always like, you know, people ask Paul McCartney what it's like to be Paul McCartney or actually they used to ask George Harrison and he would say, well, I don't know what it's like not to be George Harrison. It's the same as being you except I'm me, you know? Um, and, and, and so it's, it's hard to have perspective so that, you know, how does David Crosby perceive this journalist who comes to his room to ask him about whatever he's flogging at the moment. Right. Versus, um, you know, is this somebody, a a fellow musician, fellow traveler that they can relate to? Um, And I I think they they tend to, because I've been there when other people interview these guys. And I'm like, wow, that's terrible. No wonder they hate this. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I was gonna I was gonna ask you that because it seems to me there's not a lot of journalists that do have a a good cred as a musician. I mean, can you think of any? 
I can't off the top of my head, but I know they exist because I, I run into people all the time who are writers and players. And, you know, that, that it's funny, you know, like I'm not, <laughs> I have great credits and, and I've been very fortunate in, in music to, to have, to have been blessed with entree into this very rarefied world on occasions. But the, the, the nuts and bolts of it are just eking out a living. You're just kind of like, you're selling merch, you're doing gigs, you're doing, you know, you're doing stuff like this. And, and, and so I'm, I'm like, even in New York city, I mean, of course it's New York city. It's not, we're not in Charlotte or someplace, you know, it's like, I could be a, you can be a very big fish in that pond and then do the, you could be like the, the big dog as a musician and then musicians come to town. You also interview them. So it would be a different thing. But here in New York city, I'm just a guy doing gigs. You right. know, I have, I have a nice fan base and people will come to see me. I have, I've had this residency at, at this place called Hill country here five years, every month for five years. And we get a really healthy crowd still now. Um, you know, not every show is a sellout, but by and large, we're able to fill the place every time. And I think, you know, that to be able to do that in New York City, even though it's only a couple hundred people or whatever, that's a feat in and of itself. But that doesn't make me like, you know, when I sit down and I talk to Crosby or Jackson Brown or, you know, whoever it is, I don't feel like collegial or anything. Mm hmm. They may see it as a fellow traveler um, because you're you're just trying to get by the same way they are because things have changed so much. Right. Um, but, you know, um, so, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really – it's a funny thing. It's, it's like we could spend the whole 45 minutes talking about, <laughs> you know, our, our, our perception as our, of ourselves as artists and, you know, creative people. Right. So. Um, well, it's interesting that, I, to say, that you said that um, you were making a living as a musician, basically, the first, you know, part of your life. Yeah. Until the music industry became digitized and yeah. you know, record companies went away, or well, uh, it wasn't. I don't put it down. Look, I, the internet and streaming and downloads and all of that have been nothing but good for me. There's a couple of things. I just had this conversation yesterday because I know you know Blake Morgan had his piece about he went to the meeting with Spotify and you know, he got them to ad- admit that their product is Spotify and not the music that's mm-hmm. on Spotify. And his contention is, well, your product is actually the music. He's right. However, from my point of view, owning my masters, which is key, if I license something to film or TV, goes in my pocket. If I, uh, something gets played in a commercial or on air, goes in my pocket. For streaming, I don't have to split the... Point oh 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 one cents that I get from Spotify, which is how it works for most artists. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes in my pocket. So multiply that over however many streams you get in a month or a year or whatever it is. I see income from that, and but it's it's also, you know, it's international AM radio, and and that's how I see it. It's like I get I get notes from people all over the world 
who are aware of what I do mm-hmm. as a songwriter, you know, not just as a, as a journalist, but as a songwriter who are fans, you know, literally they collect, you know, can you sign this? Can you send me a t-shirt? Can you, you know, whatever it is that I, who would have no concept of who I am, a guy sitting in his, you know, a recording studio, home studio, whatever, wherever it is I'm working at the time in New York city, if it weren't for the internet and it weren't, if it weren't for the digital boom of, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that's now created so much chaos in all our lives. Right. But, but the reality, the reality is so yes, it took away the, the, the old version of make a record, sell a record, tour a record, do it again. And there was immediate income from that. And, and, and very recognizable and discernible income from that. You would, you know, you would make a CD and you would get, you know, people would buy the CD. You would see immediate, you know, like, and now I find people buy more t-shirts, you know, at it's, it's a mer- it's an item. CD is, is an item of merchandise at a show. Right. Inevitably younger people are asking where they can download it or stream it or if they can, but they just want to buy a t-shirt. So the whole, you know, the, the, the whole model, the whole business model has changed. And a lot of people are still chafing at, at the old, you know, because they want the old way back. Right. Now, did you have an in-depth experience with the old model? It wasn't in-depth, but I was very fortunate in, you know, I, I came up in the late 80s uh, in Connecticut, New York City, uh, had a band, like, just blew up, and then we imploded. <laughs> And then I ended up in New York City trying to kind of make it as a musician, thinking I was going to be able to recreate that like nothing. Well, it took a really long time to to recreate what we created in a basement in a couple of months. You know, it just it was just this combustible, you know, um, group of people that that worked. Anyway, um, I chugged along. I'd go out with my acoustic guitar and do tours. I'd gig with people. I'd do sessions. I'd sit in on Hammond if people. You know, whatever they call me for, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd play and write, 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 write all the time. Um, and I was pretty young. I was still in school or I was just out of school and I was just kind of like making money at whatever I can make money at. And then I just by happenstance, I ended up at a, a birthday party for Tommy Hilfiger, which was weird in and of itself. And Pete Townsend was there because he missed his flight. Weird. And we ended up all of us afterward going out drinking and Pete and his best friend and I were like the last three standing. You know, it was like five in the morning and it was just, you know, everybody else had work the next day or whatever. Right. I was, they were leaving for London the next day because they obviously missed their flight. And I was going to do a little acoustic tour. And he and his friend Bar- Barney, the guy who named The Who actually, gave me their phone numbers. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to call Pete Townsend. But I did call Barney. And he's like, oh, you should call Pete. I'm like, mm, yeah, no, not so much. Anyway, he kept coming back to New York City because of Tommy was was developing at the time, the Broadway show. And we just hit it off. And he was dating uh, my girlfriend's best friend at the time. So we ended up like doing double dates and stuff. And like you know gosh. how guy, guys are. You know, like we'd talk about like what we were listening to, what we were what books we were reading, movies, you know, that kind of thing. We figured out we had a lot in common, which is really kind of strange. And he very quickly became not the guy that I saw on my TV as a 15-year-old kid growing up, but this guy that I kind of liked and and got to know. 
And then, um, you know, maybe a year or so into the relationship, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done with school. I I'm done with exams. I want to start making music full time. Would you produce me? Which became, he, he had, was flush with money from Tommy. He funded a demo. We used his band. His brother was kind of the hands-on producer, but Pete put his name on it. And then I had entree into this whole world that was like, you know, you're going to meetings with Sony and you're going to meetings with Atlantic. And, you're, and then that led to a development deal and it led to, um, you know, t- it, it became, you know, everybody was talking about big money, big money, big money. And then it just kind of poof, disappeared. And a lot of that was because I was just like out of control with drugs and alcohol and living the rock star lifestyle, which you do at 25. Right, I mean, sure. you just can't help it. You know, took a step back put a band together and then that became the next thing I did in the late 90s which is called The Badge and that became a, a thing like a going concern as a band that would tour and go to the UK and Germany and sell records and, right. you know and, and just as it kind of felt like it was going to take off we were getting played on the BBC and things like that um, getting asked to do TV shows and stuff was getting picked up for film and TV digital came along in a big way and it it just kind of evaporated i mean it really went from you went from selling like hundreds of cds a month to like 10 right it was like wow wait i kind of count on that money where'd that money go so i thought okay well this is gonna work itself out i've got to figure it out but i've also got to find something else to do to supplement Right. So that was that's kind of the short-ish version. Well, expand a little bit upon the badge, that whole experience. Like, how or were you guys? So were you guys signed to a a label no. in Europe, or you were totally independent? At well, point? we did, yeah, yeah. Actually, we were. We, we did the first record in '97 on, on a shoestring budget. I, I had I had a lot of leftover recordings from the production deals, and so I had like lots of drums and lots of songs in progress. And I had all these masters sitting around. So I, I, in, I think it was 97, yeah, it was 97, went in the studio with my favorite couple of guys and um, made a record and put it out in the fall of 98 and hooked up with a couple of internet um, places that would sell independent CDs on the internet. And we sold it beginning in October 98 before Christmas we were sold out like completely sold out of whatever you had to buy at the time like 2000 CDs or whatever it was it was like wow that was easy <laughs> and so um you know there was there was some conflict and you know it was kind of it was kind of like Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys it was kind of like my baby with or wings or something it was like my baby with guys who had input but it was very much i was steering the ship and so you know, there there was a bumpy year or two, and then we did a, a new group of guys, did another record, um, and that got picked up by a label in the UK. And, you know, it was the days of kind of the post-Oasis years when people, especially in the UK, would go out and see bands and spend money. Right. They'd easily spend 10 or 20 pounds to see you and they'd easily spend another 20 or 30 pounds for your merch. And you, we could, would go over there two or three times a year for a week or 10 days, do the whole country or as much as you possibly can because you really can't do it that way. 
just totally gorilla and come home with kind of a, a nice chunk of money and then do other stuff, you know, right. at the same time. Meanwhile, I, I was working really hard to get my stuff, um, to license my stuff for film and TV. And I had some stuff in TV shows that have long since evaporated, you know? Yeah. Um, but I had one in Gossip Girl and The O.C. and so you, you shows cornered like that. The, the tween market. The I tween saw. market, yeah. yeah, you know? <laughs> but those were shows that had money. See, I wasn't going to do like yeah. a... The, and the bottom also dropped out of licensing because MTV was saying to bands or songwriters, we'll play your song in the real world or whatever the show was at the time. We won't pay you to license it, but you'll get your residuals and you get the you get to say you had a song in an MTV right. show. Well, that didn't work for me, but it also changed the rates for everything. It went from you getting five grand for a song to three grand for a song to like fifteen hundred for a song, and then it was like seven fifty. It was like, wow, this isn't a lot of work, you know, plugging it away right. at it at these music supervisors for very little I mean, that sounds like a lot for something that's just sitting on your shelf or, you know, that you own the master for to people, but it's not, you know, this is your, this is your real estate. Yeah. Especially when other streams of revenue are being cut off too. Right. Right. Were you the sole uh, songwriter for most of this stuff? For the first album, um, for the first album, I, I, I wrote almost everything. I think I co-wrote one song. The second album, uh, I brought on. I got a sort of partner in the band, uh, kind of Lennon and McCartney thing. And, and so it was like he had written maybe a third and I wrote the other two thirds. And then for the third album, it was all 50-50. And even when it was like a song was 90% mine and 10% his, we'd put both our names on it. And, and, then, and then it kind of, uh, like I said, it, it, it just kind of got to the point where, um, you know, as all bands, you have a shelf life. Right. You know, it was like we were on tour and one of the guys had a nervous breakdown and, you know, it's like, it's the old story. It's, it's hard. I mean, it, it is a really, we all had young families. It's a really demanding life. I mean, you don't get paid. I, I, I think it was, I think it was Dizzy Gillespie who said this, but you don't get paid for, for the one hour you're on stage. You get paid for the 23 that you're dealing with all the other bullshit. Right. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it. <laughs> Were you opening up for anybody of note at the time? Or? I, I did. I opened, um, I did some gigs over in the UK. Like They were like big evening things with like Primal Scream and Counting Crows. And then here in the States with Sheryl Crow. Um, but not really. I mean, it, you know, it, the economics of it is, was such at the time, I don't, I don't think it's like this anymore because there's so few clubs now, especially in the UK, where we would go and we would, you know, we I had a deal with Gibson and and a nice deal with the John Henry, the rental service there, who just kind of, you know, we'd get a van, get some gear, hit the road, and, you know, you'd show up at, at wherever it was you were going to play, and there would be people there. And you would walk away with, you weren't paying to play, mm-hmm. which I think is more common now for bands who are relatively unknown. But we had, you know, we had a little bit of a name. And that was, again, that was all thanks to the internet, this mysterious internet. Like, how do these people know who we are? Right. I don't know how people found us, but they they did. It wasn't a huge group, but if you'd get 50, 100, sometimes two or 300 people in a place in these random places. I remember sure. playing I remember playing this this show... Up north, I got 
it's terrible. I don't remember where it was. Probably mm-hmm. my hometown. <laughs> Leeds. It might have been in Leeds. Okay. No, it wasn't in Leeds. It was Lest- It was in Leicester. That's right. One of the L's. We did well in the L's. London, Leeds, Leicester, Liverpool. And, 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 um, and it was this amazing, it was this club full of people. I mean, just absolutely full of people who were like, wanted to meet us, wanted to buy, sign this. To You're like, wow, <laughs> I wish we had more merch. You know, was, it's just crazy. Was anybody cognizant of like the data back then? I mean, it was, everything's so data-driven today. They'd know that like, hey, you can play Tupelo. They'll love you there. But it wasn't like that. I mean, when are we talking? Early 90s or late 80s? This or? was, no, no, no. That that was like early oh, 2000s. That's right. That was yeah. when the crash happened. Well, I, I'm sure professional people were aware of these things. But we were just guys trying to make a living. Right. You know, I mean, I think, you know, it's always easy from the outside looking in to say, that band's going to make it, that band's not going to make it, or that band, it was obvious why that band make it, made it and that one didn't. And, oh, I know what I would have done differently if I were those guys. Those are all really easy things to say. Right. The reality is when, when you're doing it, you're, you're just, you know, you're like, I remember playing a show in Leeds. It's freezing cold in, in England. Got in the van driving back to London because we had a festival midday the next day halfway there because there was no, you know, the rental vans there are weird. The, the, we ran out of gas cause it, there's no gas gauge. We had this kid driving us from South Africa and he was like, I don't know, you know? And, and so, you know, the, their version of AAA comes and it's like, you're out of gas <laughs> fills us up and we make it back to London. It was daylight. So we had like three hours of sleep and then got back in the van to go to this festival and the fucking opening band who we'd friends of ours who'd come from Germany to open this tour for us just didn't show up. They just slept in. And I thought, wow, that's pretty bold. Anyway, we made it to this gig. We did the gig and it was funny because we, we got to the end of the day and I heard we were, we were kind of packing up and getting ready to go. And I heard this, this, word came to me that the promoter was like going to hightail it out of the caravan that they had in the back of the festival that he had like enough money to pay one band. And there were two of us. It was like the stand, the old West standoff. And I made a beeline. Like I, you know, I went, I was going to get paid. We were, I was not leaving there without that money. Um, and you know, so it seems like, it's very organized and it was, you know, we had itineraries and we knew what we were going to do. We knew where we were going to go and all the, you know, the piece of paper under the door in the morning and the whole thing. But when you're in the midst of it, it's this sort of beautiful chaos that you're, you're just trying to get to the next gig and get on stage. Who's organizing this for you? Did you have a tour manager or manager? (coughs) We did. Uh, Yeah. Wow. It sounds much more professional than it actually was, (laughs) but we did. We had a, this woman in England, um, who was like all people who manage independent bands was an aspiring manager and it was on the job training. And so we did a lot of it to help her. You know, we, we pounded the pavement to get press and, and to kind of get people to the shows and, um, get bookings and better bookings or, you know, headline instead of open or open instead of headline, depending on, you know, where we were. But 
you know, yeah, we did have somebody doing kind of the nuts and bolts. And were you, I know you just touched upon this, are you booking yourself or did you get over there with a, somebody booking you a number of shows and you get there and you try to kind of improve upon it? No, we had, we had, we would go with a, you know, you'd have a plane ticket there and a plane ticket back and we would know where we were going to be. We would do, it, it would be like if we were there for 11 days, we'd have... 14 or 15 appearances you'd be doing like radio in the afternoon show at night two shows a day sometimes you'd be picking up like in-store appearances and i mean you would there was not a a moment of fat in that schedule you were like it was guerrilla warfare and and um you know and and it was weird too because then you'd come home and nobody had known that this had happened you know your your regular life would go on without you'd come back people think oh how was your vacation (laughs) oh no hardly you'd be exhausted but you'd also be on this kind of um you know this buzz where your body at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night would be like ready to do something i'm ready to go right where can i play um so yeah it was a weird it was a weird existence you know did you make it to Japan at any point? No, but w- there was actually a band called The Badge in Japan. Okay. I forget, I've forgotten how you say it in Japanese, but <laughs> we had a, because they were from the 70s and they reunited more recently, but we had a little, you know, legal altercation with them because we became The Badge in, in you know, all over the world. And, and they deferred to us because we had, you know, and, and we were going to tour. The, my original band in the 80s, The Mindless Thinkers, were going to tour in Japan. The Badge was going to tour in Japan, and then kind of the implosion happened. It's it's just, we were actually going to play, I, God, I think it was either Thailand or the Philippines. There was this big festival. There was this guy I met at a party in London. He's just an operator, but he would rent out like these 10,000-seat halls, and advertise as if the people should know who you are and he would have more demand than he could possibly fulfill and he would get 10,000 people in these halls for bands these people had never heard of and they'd be like screaming throwing themselves at their feet in the hall you know it's like the Beatles thing because they just love that experience of seeing an an Anglo-American rock band you know it's like these guys are different we're different you know it's the novelty of it um, and so that was how we were going to get over there. And then everything just, you know, was like it just kind of fell apart at that point, which was fine with me, actually. Right. Now, is your personality the type that you're kind of networking the whole time? Just when you're it sounds like you're meeting a lot of interesting people. And in and I know you've got a lot of great like you said, you've got a lot of great contacts. You know, some famous people that you started with your journalism. But, you know, I know some of the other, you know, as we move on in your uh, your music career. You know, you're playing with um, the guy from Wings, Steve, Steve, Steve Holly. Holly. Yeah. You know, and you're playing with a couple guys from John and Yoko's band. Yeah. And is this, this is just, you're, you're meeting these guys, you're forging a relationship or are they coming in professionally to play with you at some point and then you form a relationship? I, there's two levels. There's, um, yes, always networking. And, and it's just, it's my personality. I mean, I'm sincere. It's not that I'm it's it's not this kind of callous or cavalier network sure it's just not networking to network or to make myself m- more than i am at the right. moment i'm 
genuinely interested in getting to know these people and how did they do it and how do they make it work and how do they live their lives and how they, you know, I, I was not really as a kid, a Jackson Brown fan. And I ended up interviewing him for something and we really hit it off. I'm like, is, you know, the interview was supposed to be 20 minutes and ended up being three hours and 20 minutes. Cause we both like vintage guitars and eBay and, you know, all these weird things. And, and I found he's a really interesting guy and has lived a really interesting life. Aside from what you know, he, mm-hmm. he does this every day. You know, like this is how he lives his life 24-7 at the expense of other things, you know, in his life, I think. And, and so that was really fascinating to me, all these guys. So, so in New York City, being in New York City, part of it was, you know – being in a, a city like New York, you end up being in the room with people who have done a lot of things. I'm, I'm fascinated by people. They interest me. And, right. and they can tell I'm sincere. I'm genuine. And so you end up as a musician talking to other musicians and, and inevitably playing with them. And then, you know, what I did find with a lot of the guys I've, I've played with who used to be on big tours all the time, you know, the bottom has dropped out of that too. You know, the session work that a lot of guys used to do is not what it was. Yeah. So they just want to play. And if you have, a lot of them aren't songwriters, don't produce records. So if you have a studio and a bunch of songs right. and a couple of bucks or even not, you know, just if they like you or, and you like them, They'll show up and they'll play. And all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, I've, I, I've done a couple of tracks with like Bowie's band or Wing. It was Lawrence and Steve from, from Wing. So it's like, or, P, or Townsend's band. You know, you find yourself in the room with these weird configurations of, of people and you're like, you know, it's amazing, but it also, it's sort of the inevitability of all these little pieces coming together that, that you're, so it's, it's not... I can't say it's not always in the back of my head that, hey, there's something I could do with this. Right. But it, but it isn't as, as contrived as, as you might think. It, it is kind of sort of luck and happenstance and timing and right. all these other weird – it's always those things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I tend not to be an outgoing person, so I, I admire that. <laughs> I guess the, the question wasn't to be in a manipulative manner, but it is good that you, you, know, you, were, you were outgoing and you are – you know, interested in engaging in other people. Um, I, that's the, you know, it's a weird, I, I say this all the time um, with people I know, but particularly my partner, Lynn, she, you know, I, I, I will say, we'll be walking down the street and I'll mention a few things I saw on our walk in New York City. She will not have seen any of those things, but it's the writer's eye. It's like you're always looking for something to kind of, it's the detail. It, it's, it's not about, you know, it's the Dylan thing. It, you know, Bill Flanagan asked Bob Dylan once in an interview, maybe five or 10 years ago, you know, they were in his hotel room and he said, well, could you, there was a dog on the railroad tracks. And he said, could you write about the railroad tracks? And he said, well, I want to write about that dog. He's, he, I think he's a three legged dog. And what's that dog story? I mean, that's, 
right. what you want to see as a writer. And so I think, um, you know, part of it is being outgoing, but it's, I think, more curiosity. Right. And it, it, it's like I said earlier, you know, it's the sincerity in that curiosity. It's not just sort of curious to be, like you said, contrived or, right. you know, manipulative. Um, how did you get to know Bowie's people? <laughs> how did I? Well, um, back in the 90s when I was, after I did the stuff with Pete, I, I, I played with Mark Platty before he worked with Bowie. And I'd run into him periodically and it was like, I didn't think anything of it because like I was working with Pete. He was working with David. It was like, you know, it seemed normal to guys who were like 25 or 30 at the time. Um, and we kept in touch and then I think it was maybe 2009 or 10 when I, the badge had kind of gone away. I had built up the writing and I was looking to do stuff solo. Mm -hmm. I could tell I wasn't going to put a new badge together, you know, and I had a couple of songs and they had a kind of. I heard Carlos Alomar and Earl Slick on them. And I said to the drummer, this guy Alex Alexander that I played with since the 90s, I hear Carlos and Slick on them. And he said, oh, I know Carlos. He said, you should just ask him. Uh-huh. Okay. So I did. And he said, yeah, sure. Send me the song. Send him the song. He's like, yeah, I can see what I can do with this. Why don't we, you know... Book some time. We'll, I'll come into the city and we'll do it. But I wanted Slick too. So I sent it to Slick and, you know, totally different personalities. You know, Carlos is like super business, whereas, you know, uh, Slick is much more emotional, much more gut. How did you eventually, how did you get it to Slick? Through well, I, you know, was, I, I, I think I just found like, you know, info at EarlSlick.com or whatever it was. I don't think that exists anymore, but I, I, I think that's how I got him. We ended up on the telephone describing the song to him. And whatever it was, I don't know what it was, but we clicked instantly. And Carlos and I, was, it, we're still friends to this day, but it was a much more professional relationship. It's right. like I hired him to do a session. Whereas Slick and I still, I mean, we just played the other night in Philadelphia. Right. We, we, there was a kinship there that I can't describe and he he described me to somebody as one of his best friends. And I thought, yeah, I guess he's kind of one of my best friends. Too. It's a weird. So once, so then, once I was friends with those guys, especially Slick, because he was kind of the titular leader of the last version of David's touring band, just by dint of how long he'd been with David. Mm -hmm. And being kind of a brand name in his own right, working with John and uh, Lennon and, and, and other people as well. Um, so Gail Ann Dorsey, who I also knew, you know, through the scene and Mark Platty, who I'd known from the 90s and whatever, they were all happy to contribute to, to the stuff I was working on. Plus, I'd, I was working with the guys from Wings and I got a couple of the guys. I mean, some of them were, they were like guys... Gene Parsons from the Birds. I just wanted that sound. Sure. And I found him because of the internet. And he said, yeah, sure. I, you know, it's like part of it is asking and part of it is 
part of it is having the guts to ask mm-hmm. that it takes everybody aback that you're like, wow, really? Part of it is these guys are not doing a lot of sessions. So yeah. they're like, they're, they're thrilled to contribute to something new that isn't a bird's cover, you know? Yeah. Oh, great. You don't want me to plan a bird's cover. And part of it is to, you know, not to be egotistical about it, but I, I, I have gotten the feedback that they get a lot of stuff from aspiring songwriters that's terrible. So if it's even remotely good, they're just thrilled to be in, you know, playing on something that's new and fresh and different and a new songwriter and happy to kind of pass the baton in that, in, in a little, in that, you know, in a small way. Uh-huh. Who's playing with you now? I mean, your, your primary, I know you, you still perform with Slick and Slate yeah. on occasion, <laughs> but you've got your own uh, Jeff Slate and friends. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody of note in that? Yeah. Well, yeah. The whole band is um, Mark Platty uh, plays in that. Uh, Rick Mullen, who's played with Don McLean and Commander Cody and a bunch. He plays bass. Uh, Mark Bosch, who's in Ian Hunter's band and has a long career as a lead guitar player. Uh, Steve Holly normally plays drums, but he's just been so busy with Ian Hunter and everything else he does. Um, It's been... I'm back with Alex Alexander, who I've been playing with now since I did this stuff with Townsend. So, you know, more than 25 years now. So, nice. um, it's a great band there. These are, <laughs> it's almost impossible to sound bad. I mean, you could almost put anybody in front of them doing karaoke right. and, and it would sound great by the same token. You know, it, it is hard work to front to band. I, you know, I've, I've learned cause I was in a front man and I was never a front man in the badge you're in a band and you know, you have the ability to kind of like somebody else singing with you or they take the lead on some, you know, whatever it is. So now it's, you know, we, we play three, three and a half, four. We do the Springsteen set of a long, you know, a long night. And, you know, occasionally we have a guest vocalist or one of the guys gets to sing a song, but it's, it's pretty much down to me. And I've learned how to do that on the job training. You enjoy it? I do. I I never, I used to say with dead certainty that I really hated playing live. And, and I don't say that anymore. That's funny. I mean, that, that question was more about singing, but even playing oh. live, I feel like everyone that's, that's when it's like, nope, you know. nope. I mean, I can see getting sick of touring and this yeah. and that, but yeah, playing that's, live is always that's tough. A, um, personalities are tough. Being in bands are tough. Uh, but, um, I, as we just talked about, I'm really fortunate to play with these amazing people. We have guests who are, like, amazing guests. I just did a couple of gigs with John Doe last month. It was, like, so cool, you know. It's like, John Doe, he's such, like, the the real thing. Yeah. You know, we, we joked about, we were, at, we were at dinner beforehand, and I said, you know, I used to know Joe Strummer when he lived here in New York City, and I said, Jesus... If Joe were alive, I'd be doing this with Joe. But you had to come from L.A. so I could do it with you. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, because they're the same kind of guy. They they like they mean it. You know, they're really old school in that in that regard. Anyway, um, so it's it's become more interesting because it's become easier. I get paid more now, which, you know, that, that does have an impact on how you feel about it. I, I hate to say, um, of course, all of us would do it for nothing 
but we prefer not to. Yeah. You know, there is respect in getting paid. Um, but there is a feeling of, um, there is a feeling of satisfaction when you can, you know, keep the attention of a room of people who've come to see you anyway, but, you know, keep that attention for an hour and a half or two hours or even three or three and a half hours and have them really enjoy it. Um, you know, they forget about Donald Trump and their woes for the, for the evening. And, and you, you get something that I, I I think when, I think when you become really comfortable as a performer, you start to find new ways to enjoy it. I think that that's, that's what it is. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's segue into your, uh, your journalism career. Now you were saying earlier, um, as you were finishing school, did you did you major in journalism? Yeah, I did. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Good fallback. <laughs> journalism, poli sci, and um, I I came to New York. I, I grew up in Connecticut. My sister and brother in law were here in the city, and I started taking the train by myself at about nine years old. Oh my God. Sister took me to see the Clash when I was like you know in eighty one, eighty two as well. Uh, changed my life, um, <clears throat> but I kept coming, and I kept, I couldn't get it out of my veins, and so, like, the minute, whatever I was, 17 or whatever, you know, finished high school, hopped on a train, and moved here, and that that was it. Wanted to go to NYU, because I knew they had, a, I wanted to intern with Letterman, and I wanted to intern with the CBS Evening News, right? Letterman didn't work out because you literally had to do that full time and, and NYU wouldn't give me a full semester of credits for just like working a job. They'd give me, I think they were going to give me four. Right. For like, you know, so my dad was going to, that was not going to work. Much to my chagrin. I mean, that, that would have been a cool experience because it was the heyday of Dave. It was like sort of 87, I think I interviewed. Pretty cool. I, inter- I, I worked for Dan Rather when he was at the CBS Evening News. Um, 88, 88 campaign. It's pretty fascinating stuff. God, when was that? Was that Dukakis? Dukakis and Bush. Oh. And th- there was stuff, there were stories that n- still have not seen the light of day that I was like, wow, these are, you know, it's like they had to be vetted. They, it was the old school where right. they had to have s- multiple sources. Now they just, you know. Um, and, and, and meanwhile, I was playing in bands and I was gigging with whoever would hire me. I was doing all these weird, interesting gigs. I had a talk show, like a Letterman-style talk show at NYU. I had everybody from like Cody Mundy and Regina Bell to Carrie Fisher and Adam Sandler. I mean, we, you know, it was like this crazy amalgam of, of people on this show. It's like a little closed circuit show. Um, played with Miles Davis's band, like... They just needed a bass player for the night. It was like crazy stuff. Um, and writing. You know, so I interviewed Kiss and I wrote about the Kinks and interviewed Ray Davies. And, you know, it was all this stuff that I was sort of... Um, How was that early stuff coming about? You were just doing freelance gigs? I would just, you know, it, when I was in high school, I would just call up the record label, ask for the publicity department, say, I need two tickets to the Providence show and I want to interview Joe Strummer. And... I was 16, but you know, it was a different time because you would show up and interview 
Ray Davis or Joe Strummer or whatever, they kind of liked it that you were that ballsy. Sure. And, and, and I really knew the subject. I, I loved those guys. So I was just as thrilled um, to be doing that as anything else in the world. And, and I think it showed. And Ray, I interviewed Ray one time. I've interviewed many, I was say, many you, times. You've now. circled back with Ray. I, I had it. Yeah, we're now relatively friendly. It's crazy. But uh, um, I remember interviewing him after a show in Providence, and he was just burned out and just got out of the shower. And, blah, and he was like, rah, 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 rah. But by the end of it, I'd kind of won him over just with my sheer enthusiasm. I was right. such a Kinks fan. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, so it, it, it was the germ of what I do now. It just took me 30 years to get here. Mm -hmm. Um, let me, I guess I'll throw a bunch of names out at you. (laughs) Um, it seems like you do a lot with Noel and Liam Gallagher. Are they, they, they seem like they're never a dull interview i mean is that is that an easy job when you get that assignment uh yes uh, liam's actually really he's tough he he's tough because he's unpredictable and he's you don't know if he's going to show up you don't know what kind of mood he's going to be in he's he's great once you get him on the phone or in the chair but i'm i'm you know i don't i make no secret i'm team noel he's just a fascinating guy he's great whatever you want to talk about if you want to talk about Donald Trump, he'll talk about Donald Trump. If you want to talk about psychedelics, he'll happily talk about that. You want to talk about guitars, the rest of the day. You want to talk about songwriting, same thing. You can't stop him. If you just want him to like wind up his brother and give you some quotes about that, or he'll tell you about like doing karaoke with Bono in Bogota. I mean, it, it's just like you just wind him up and he goes. You, you kind of can't go wrong. And there are very few people with that enthusiasm for doing the job of rock star right. in this day and age. I mean, the older guys, they're on the treadmill. They're, they're, many of the guys who are out there touring would not be doing it if they didn't have several divorces under their belt. Right. And, and, a, and a really high-flying lifestyle sure. to pay for. Um, so to find people who still like Paul Weller, who, who he won't, I, I, you know, also I do a lot with, with Paul and we've gotten to be friends over the years. And, and he, he will laugh when I say this, if he hears this, that he just has too many kids and too many exes. You know, I mean, he, that's why he's out on the road. However, we had this conversation just a month or so ago. He really loves it. And he loves trying to do new stuff, finding new people to play with, young people to play with, who can inspire him. Um, you know, when you, when you, it was funny, I did, I wrote the book with, for Roy Orbison's sons about, about Roy sort of authorized biography. And I brought one to Paul, not kind of knowing if he was a big fan, he had to be a fan, but you know, did he, you know, it's not kind of his wheelhouse. And we ended up having like 30 minutes on Roy Orbison. He just grilled me about Roy Orbison. He had like questions only a super diehard fan would know that's cool it was cool it was really cool it's funny you bring up um didn't somebody go on a tour called the alimony tour seems like yeah (laughs) who did that i can't remember (laughs) they were more honest about it in the 80s and 90s (laughs) you know it's probably eagles or something but (laughs) now we're you know back a little back a little ways it seems like the you know the in journalism, you're probably suffering from a little bit what the music industry is suffering from is that just people want everything for free. So yeah. are there times where you were actually 
do you have good experiences like they're going to put you on a plane you're going to go hang out with these guys for a week in la versus here's the number give them a call <laughs> you know like you're experiencing kind of profiling these people has that changed over the years um if if the story warrants that there's budget um you know I was supposed to go to L.A. last year to interview Tom Petty for uh, when they were going to do the Wildflowers box set. They ended up doing the big 40th anniversary tour instead and putting putting off the Wildflowers box set. But nobody at Esquire blanched when I said, I need to go to L.A. and interview Tom in Malibu, and I'm going to be there for a couple of days. We're going to meet with Rick Rubin and, you know, whatever. Right. That nobody, I don't know how that would have worked, but nobody ever said, no, you got to do it on the phone. Right. Or make it a day. Make, yeah, or whatever. I, it never, you know, unfortunately never came to that. Now it's not going to happen in, in, at least in those terms. But, I, you know, the, the benefit of being a, a, a musician slash writer that a lot of these guys now know in New York City is I will get a call or an email, hey, Roger Waters is going to be in, he lives here, but he's going to be in the city on such and such in a month or so. And do you have any time? Would you like to do something with him? Because we have a good relationship and he's a great interview. And um, sure. Okay, well, here's the studio he's working at. You know, you can go and, you know, we'll give you like 45 minutes. But if it, you know, if he, if he's happy and he wants to keep going, we'll leave it open open afterward in case you guys want to keep going or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I have, I've never, there's very, been very rare experiences where it's been somebody that I wanted to interview, that I went prepared and excited to be there. And it didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted it to, because they know that even if I'm not a fan of their music per se, these these are the architects of my job, mm-hmm. whether it's the writing or the music. I mean, they created what I do. And so there's an enthusiasm and a knowledge base that I bring to the table when I sit with these guys. I, I mean, I, I sat with Jimmy Page one time, first time I interviewed him, and they squeezed me in. They had like, you know, 20 minutes left. I was on my way to the subway and the guy said, come back. We've got to So I rushed back to the hotel, sat down with him and he like, he made me a coffee, which blew my mind. And so I'm sitting with Jimmy Page, and we chit-chatted. We had some mutual friends. That always helps. And we were into the conversation, and I said something about... I grew up with Zeppelin. My brother was a huge Zeppelin fan. But I wouldn't identify myself as a Zeppelin fan. But we had been talking about bootlegs. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a pretty avid collector. And he said, well yeah, but you seem to have a pretty big collection. How many bootlegs do you have? And I said, oh, it's funny. I have them all digitized. So I have 256 live shows and they're dated. And and I didn't say that, but I just said I have 250. He said, there aren't 256 shows. And I said, well, I know there are because the hard drive says 256 items and they're all dated. They're by date. You know, it's like they start in 68 or nine and they go through, you know, the end. And there may be multiple nights of a few, but... Uh, multiple versions of a few upgrades or whatever, but that's, you know, they're dated. And he said, but you're not a Zeppelin fan. And I said, yeah, but you have to understand, this is like 
a library for an author, you know, for a fiction writer, you know, right. This is, you know, this is whether or not I'm a fan or not, it's Led Zeppelin. They, they were the architects of a whole segment of music that's just peerless in its execution. So for me not to recognize that there's something there for me, even though it may not, you know, make my toe shoot up in my boot, as little Richie used to say, that, that doesn't mean it isn't great in its own right. And there isn't something inspiring there for me. So that's something I've learned, you know, when I was younger and I had these, I would have these conversations with Joe Strummer, actually, uh, you know, we hated everything. And then I, Five years later or ten years later when I saw him and he was here in New York, he'd softened and so had I. It was funny. It was like everything that you were so against in year zero, you were like, oh, Led Zeppelin, they're pretty great. (laughs) They are Led Zeppelin after all. You know, so, uh, I mean, there's still bands that I can't, I just can't fathom why anyone likes or listens to, like Bon Bon Jovi or the Eagles or people like that. It's just like, it's empty. It's soulless to me. Led Zeppelin's not a soulless. It's not, I would never probably put it on, but it's amazing. It's so, so we ended up, that became the first of, I think, five interviews I did with Jimmy Page. Like he would come to New York and they'd be like, hey, Jimmy's coming to New York. He really wants to interview him. And the guys at Esquire would be like, what can we do with, <laughs> what's, the what, angle? <laughs> what's the angle now? You've interviewed him so many times in like a two year period. It was really funny because they were all the reissues rolling out. But I found ways to do it in other outlets and whatever. But I remember the, the last time I saw him was maybe about two years ago. And it was like, you do get to the point where these guys, they trust you, you know, but also um, you have fun, you know, right. their guard is down a little bit and, and you have a rapport and, um, you know, you communicate by text or email when it's not on duty and and they know you're not going to put that in the story right that's cool yeah what what would you say your biggest who is your biggest get for you personally (laughs) it's funny it's not who you would maybe think um the the person who i found myself 10 minutes in nervous like oh my god was willie nelson okay i can get that um because again, this guy invented the gig and he's still doing it. And he was, fu- he was everything you want him to be. You want to talk about weed? Great. You want to talk about politics? Great. You want to talk about music? Great. You want to talk about, you know, redheaded stranger, whatever it is, you know, you want to talk about 1976 and the movie and all this other stuff. No problem. Willie's game. And he's funny. And about 10 minutes in, he was answering a question and you're just listening to his voice and you're like, oh my God, this is fucking Willie Nelson. Holy moly. Because it is somebody that all of us have grown up with. Yeah. And it's hard to set that as, you know, in the moment when you're with these people, you do forget it. I mean, everybody says like, how can you forget it? It's Jimmy Page. You know, he's, he's just a guy. Willie Nelson is maybe not just a guy, I think. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why he, it made me nervous. What would you say the biggest misconception is of, of the famous, I guess, for lack of a... They work a lot harder than you probably realize. I mean, I, th- I think we think that these guys who are out on the road, and, and Tom Petty's a, a great example. He, he, he was injured. He didn't need to go out on that tour. He could have canceled that tour. 
Um, he was not going to do that. That was not how he did business. There was a tour scheduled. He was going out on the road. And he was a relatively young but road-weary 66. And, you know, I saw him a couple of times on that tour, and he was as good as he'd ever been. Yeah. And and really giving it his all. And the band was phenomenal. And, and you know, I had the great fortune of, you know, I, I got to, like, stand with his wife on the stage side stage watching the show thinking to myself well they can every every time the the heartbreakers would come to town my experience would be better than the last and i i remember going home from the show thinking they can never beat this and that's my last sort of memory of those guys and that's pretty amazing in and of itself but i think what people don't recognize is he worked he was working his ass off yeah. All of them, all of the heartbreakers, not just that front guy, yeah. but every single one of them. And for over, what, 35, 40, 40 years? years, right? I mean, and so, so there's that, but then there's also the fact that by and large, unless they're a little bit burned out and that does happen to a certain degree or they're just in promo mode, so they're a little burned out on the promotion, these guys are fans, as much as you yeah. or I are. And I think it's more evident with people like Noel Weller or uh, Noel Gallagher or Paul Weller because they're, I mean, I guess they're a little younger. Um, they wear it a little more on their sleeves. But, you know, if, if you talk to Jimmy Page about music, he lights up. Sure. I mean, these, these guys, I remember, I remember the, the night I met, uh, the first time I met Tom Petty, I asked him about, you know, Bob Dylan and George. After we'd kind of gotten comfortable, I asked him about, you know, I got to ask you, what's Bob Dylan really like? And George and, and Roy, Roy Orbison. And, you know, you talk, especially when you talked about Roy Orbison, he lit up. I mean, he really like, like you or I would, if we had gotten to know that person, we had idolized this person and then got to work with them and write with them and play with them and just be friends with them. Yeah. Do Monty Python skits in the back of the limo with them. Um, literally on the way to the handle with care video shoot, they were doing Monty Python. You know, it's like, it's, it's an amazing image in your brain, but he would light up because just like you or me, he held those memories as dearly as I do of him telling me that story. Right. Well, isn't there a story too from you about going backstage and she's with Roger McGuinn, who I know is a huge influence and they're, they're playing a song and you could tell everyone's yeah, totally into it. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, it, it was when Mudcrutch were in town a couple of years in 2016. And I was backstage and I had met Roger and his wife before. And I, I was, you know, comfortable in the Heartbreakers circle. So I was there with Ben Montench and his wife. And we were just all sitting around. Roger went off. And, and, I, and so we were sitting with Camilla, his wife, and Ben Mont and his wife. And, and Roger's son, actually, Patrick, who uh, shot a video of mine with Slick. Uh, it's a small world, this this incestuous music world we live in. And I looked, and McGuinn was over in the corner with Mike Campbell just playing guitars, just kind of quiet, you know, like strumming and, you know. And then um, Herb Pedersen joined them, and then a couple, you know, Ben Mont wandered over, and then Tom walked through, went and got his bass, came in, a couple of amps appeared. Sure enough... They're standing in a semicircle rehearsing for what they're going to do that night because Roger was going to join them on a couple of songs. And they did, they did a couple of songs they didn't play, um, but they did Bugler. I mean, you know, how many times do you get to hear Bugler with 
these guys like right and like as close as we are uh they did knocking on heaven's door no the, the, roger didn't do that but they did play it back there but they did a couple of other songs um lover of the bayou was one and um ain't going nowhere because i know people are gonna want to what, what do they play and it was funny because i turned to tom's manager and i said oh my god can, can i take a picture and he go yeah no because <laughs> i am you know he knows that even though i was off duty and i announced look i'm off duty i'm i'm the enemy you yeah. know so no so fortunately, Roger's wife did take a picture. And subsequently, I, I really wanted to write about seeing Mudcrutch. And, and I, I texted Tony, their manager, and I said, look, I really want to do this. I think people want to hear this story about how that happened and how that then transferred to the stage, that kind of camaraderie, that intimacy, you know, on the stage at, at, at the event. And he said, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. Because it was that sort of an off-the-record experience right. otherwise. And he liked that I asked. I didn't just do it. I said, hey, I'm going to do that. And, and, and I said, well, can I use this picture that Camilla said? Yeah, absolutely, no problem, as long as it's okay with her. So, um, so I got to share that story, and, and it was just this, you know, this window into this world. It was like nothing to them. This is just, you know, they, they could have done that all night, just sat around sure. and played Bob Dylan songs. Sure. So. But to, to to get to experience their joy, you know, and, you know, it was an idol playing with an idol. I said this both in in that piece, the Mud Crutch piece for Esquire and also the obit I wrote about Tom. That was as happy as I'd ever seen him. I mean, he was and I'd gotten to see him up close quite a few times at that point, fortunately. But Mud Crutch was this there was this joy in doing that because the scale of it was so small right. and because it was. Because he wanted to, not because he had to. I mean, he was very fortunate in being able to do what he wanted to do in the same way kind of Dylan does. By the same token, there's always an element of, you know, there's a lot of mouths to feed in a tour and, and so forth. Mud Crutch stripped that all away. It was 100% guys on a small stage with smaller amps than they were used to um, playing songs that nobody knew. Right. You know, new songs the crowd had never heard before. I mean, holy shit, how often does that happen? That we get to see somebody of that stature just like strip it all away and just like go for it. Yeah. Where did they play when they came to New York? Uh, it was uh, Webster Hall, okay. which is the old Ritz. Right. Uh, they did two nights, which is nothing. It's like that's maybe 2,500 tickets tops. Yeah. So it was crazy. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Um, so I wind up every show with the same five questions. So let's, uh, let's go there. A Proust questionnaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one is, what's your most prized musical possession? I have a 1965 Epiphone Casino that is, is allegedly the one right next off the assembly line from George Harrison's. Interesting. Is that a, like a, well, you mentioned eBay earlier that you... Uh, no, I got it on tour. I got it on tour in Buffalo. <laughs> I, I walked into the store, saw it on the wall, way up high, like 20 feet off the ground. I said, I'll take that. And they said, do you want to know how much it is? You know, but I, I didn't know anything about it. Um, it was a, a, an epif a vintage Epiphone Casino. This is maybe 91-ish um, with a Bigsby, which is very rare. I could tell the year-ish. Took it down. I just bought it, played it 
sounds great. Um, didn't even plug it in, just bought it. And subsequently, because I have a deal with Gibson, I've been up there for events and private parties and things like that. I had them take a look at it and they were like, oh my God, it's actually, I think maybe five or six serial numbers off from George's. But what they figure is they didn't number them sequentially. It was like whatever the label was. So if an, if a Texan came next or a, you, you know, a okay. Riviera came yeah. next, that got the next number. So it was probably because of the way they were made, they weren't mass produced five or six numbers away is probably the next casino. Yeah. And it's exact. It's identical because it has a Bigsby. And so, so there's lots of things I have that are like signed or, you know, Pete, you know, Christmas cards from Pete or, you know, whatever it is, little things that are totems of my relationships with these people. And, and they all are meaningful. I also have a pair of coconuts that Terry Jones, not musical, but in, in a way in, in the rock and roll world, Terry Jones from Monty Python. I've done some stuff with the Pythons and they were all here for the Tribeca film festival. And these were his coconuts for the press, the <laughs> press walk. And he finished it and he handed them to me and he has, you know, sort of uh, dementia now. And, and I love the guy to bits, but he, I have these coconuts on my bookshelf and I look at them all the time. And I think, you know, those are things that, you know, more than like the backstage pass or the signed yeah, yeah, album sure. or the, there's something that only I know, yeah. you know? Um, and, and I have some stuff that, you know, is, is priceless in relative terms for rock and roll fans. Like I, I said, I said to Jackson Brown when I interviewed him, Hey, my brother got, has an album that he gave me. It's signed by Jackson and the whole run on an empty band, Lindley and the whole band. And he said, well, can I buy it from you? <laughs> you know, it's like he wanted it. You know, some of those guys are not here anymore. Yeah. So it's, I have some cool stuff, but the, the the interactive pieces are are probably more special. Cool. These, that was a long answer. You got to do no, five. I mean, no, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, number two, I, mean, I guess you know, calling this uh, podcast Rockonomics, we didn't really get into too much money, but this one kind of comes off that. But if if I were to give you a million dollars for charity, who gets it? Am I a charity? <laughs> no, no, I mean, I mean, can I give it to myself? No, let me see. Wow. Music Cares is pretty great. For all the big hoo-ha shindigs they throw, they do a lot for musicians who need help. Sadly, a lot of musicians who need help don't know they exist right. and don't know how to reach out to them. Um, but I think anything that supports artists, writers, creative people, um, would be first and foremost because, you know, I was having this conversation with Mark Platty on the way back from the gig in Philly the other night. Um, he used to do and still does records in Europe where the government underwrites the record labels. So... You know, you think, why do we not have a new breed of young songwriters? Why is it, you know, all this sort of cookie cutter, you know, pop music? Right. Because we don't have an infrastructure that supports the arts that, and there's certain ways they have to spend that money, you know, it's not right. just sort of willy nilly. Um, but they support the arts and artists. They want 
people to write songs and create music in their countries. Um, and, and we don't do that. And that's shameful. I mean, right. I think the last president to make that a priority was Kennedy's. And that wasn't even in my lifetime. So there you I f- go. I feel like, well, the National Endowment of the Arts, it's always like a, uh, you know, a sticking point between Republicans and Democrats. Where, where is that lately? I figured that would be another outrageous cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 Trump the budget that Trump proposed uh, a couple of months ago, and we'll see in the State of the Union coming up. Um, uh, I think cut all funding for the National Endowment for the Arts and and humanities as well. But I think it's not just that we as a as a country as a people don't we we rely on corporate people and angel investors to support the arts. People don't even want to pay to go see a band. They want no cover shows. Right. You know, they don't even want to, they're like, they complain when the t-shirt is 25 instead of 20. I understand 50 is a lot for a t-shirt and I understand $400 is a lot, even for Paul McCartney or the Stones. But the reality is, um, you know, they're, they're making up the money that you're depriving them of elsewhere. Right. All right. Next question's, uh. Will put us in a better mood. <laughs> it's, uh, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Something by William Bell. I don't know that. I don't know oh, that. he was a he was a Stax artist. Um, you don't bring me water. Probably okay. would be. Um, I'd rather go blind. I mean, he was kind of the the real Rod Stewart. You know, I don't know how to. If you've never heard, look him up. I'm giving everybody a homework assignment. (laughs) Uh, 180 from there is what's stuck on repeat in hell. Bon Jovi. Because they're like, they're getting that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. And it's like, what is it? Living on a prayer? Or what's the Cowboys? You know, one of those. I'm like, Billy Joel. Are are you a voting (laughs) member? Yeah. Oh, none of the Rock Hall of the Grammys. Okay. Uh, and last question is, what's your best concert live performance you've Clash. Wit- you've witnessed Clash? Clash. First time you saw them? Yeah. Um, anytime. I now, when you them, mentioned 82, was, that was when they were opening for, uh, what, the police? Wasn't there a... Uh, they, opened for the, they opened for the Who, but I, oh, the I didn't who, see who, them. The I who. saw them uh, on their own tour, uh, but I saw them in 81 at Bonds. Changed my life. Changed my life. And I, my, I was watching a video not long ago. My son walked through. He's like, Wow. Whoa. And I was like, that's just on TV. It's like, I've seen great, like truly great live bands, you know, and, you know, unfortunately you didn't get to see like Hendrix or any, you know, these other people, but people who are held up there in really high regard, nobody, nobody touches them. Nobody. Right. They, they were like a whole different level and and I didn't go in as a diehard fan. They were just kind of like a band I kind of liked. London Calling was a cool yeah. album. And I went in, you know, because Sandinista had just come out. And that was like a lot for a 13-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid to take in. It was like, what the fuck is this? And it was just so explosive. It's almost... It's like when people describe seeing Mott the Hoople in their heyday okay. or, or Hendrix in, in, you know, when, he was, when he was alive or even The Doors, I think. Um, 
the clash were otherworldly. And I saw, I saw a year or two later, I saw you two at Yale in the church at Yale and they had covered the pipe organ with this wooden box and Bono announced he was told not to climb on it. So he of course immediately climbed on it and rammed the mic stand into it. They were explosive and dynamic. He climbed on the balcony like a monkey. It was amazing. Didn't touch the clash, not even in the same ballpark as the clash. Well, that's a great measure of a band when you go and you're going to see them, not as a, you know, as a casual fan and they really leave. It changed my life. It really did. Yeah, that's great. It's very cool. Well, Jeff Slate, I appreciate you giving me your time. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Jeff Slate. You can read his articles, hear his music, and keep up with where he's playing on jeffslatehq.com. A big shout-out to Kathy Huck for putting me in touch with Jeff and to Laura Padone for providing me with a place to record while in New York. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please spread the word and go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or threats, you can reach us at dill at rocknomicspodcast.com. We'll be back next Tuesday with an all-new episode, so please join us again then. We are done here. Good night, Cleveland. <laughs>